Happy Lord's Day. Happy Lord's Day. My name is Ross. I'm a member here at Bethany Baptist Church. Because man must not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible under the seat in front of you. If you're using one of those Bibles, it is going to be on page 943. Once again, we're going to be in John chapter 3. If you've never opened a Bible before, John would be the book name. Chapter 3 is the large number. I'm going to be in verse 1, which is going to be the small numbers. John chapter 3, verse 1. Hear God's word as he speaks to us now. There was a man named, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it's going. You do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? Asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you, do, and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. But God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe in him is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be completed or accomplished by God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of the Lord dwell richly within us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you desperate and eager, anticipating growth, anticipating that you would bend us and mold us to your word. Lord, we pray that you would, through this text, through John chapter 3, speak a specific word and everybody here that would move them towards knowing and enjoying you forever. Lord, we pray that your word would dwell richly within us, that you would grant us faith to see the overwhelming amount of love you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So growing up, I... Uh, didn't become a Christian until I was around middle school. I grew up Buddhist. Um, and when I became a Christian, I started to share the gospel with one of my elementary school friends. We've been best friends since fifth grade, and I still see him. I saw him a few weeks ago. Um, we'll call him Bert. Uh, Bert, in middle school, started to come to church with me. He heard the gospel. Um, he enjoyed singing to God. Uh, Bert would read the Bible, and he'd sit under the same preaching that I heard. Um, Bert, in many ways, had a sense of a relationship with God. He felt like God was answering his prayers. And then somewhere in high school, Bert decided that maybe Christianity wasn't for him. And in these last few years, we've picked up the Bible again, and we started reading the Bible again. We've been reading through the book of Mark. Bert knows the gospel. He can recite the gospel, can tell other people about the gospel. And yet there's parts of his life that Bert isn't willing to give up for the gospel. Bert still prays, and he feels like God answers him. Yet for Bert, he, he's had just enough religion for me. He said, that, that's enough. Like, I don't, I, I, I want Jesus, but I don't want Jesus if it's going to cost me this. And so Bert, in one sense, is religious. He feels like he has a relationship with God, but it saddens me knowing that Bert's religion is enough 
just to send him straight to hell. Because he has not picked up his cross, denied himself to follow Jesus. He has this sense of a relationship with God, but he doesn't. God demands all of him, and he refuses to give God all of him. And that's similar to the man that we see here with Nicodemus in John 3. If you're taking notes today, I'll give you a main goal, but we're really just going to be working through the text, and, and hopefully this will help you take notes and kind of signpost where I'm at. But the main goal today is that you would entrust yourself to Jesus. Are we all weary of that? I could be self-deceived, even here in this moment, thinking that I'm giving my all to Jesus, thinking that God has full demand over my life. But five years from now, maybe this was just an act. Maybe there's something that comes up in my life where I'd rather have something else than Jesus. And that, that scares me. That I would be like Bert, possibly, one day. So God's word has something to say to that today, if that scares you. Or if you feel like you're in Bert's situation, where there's things in your life you're unwilling to give up, God's word will encourage you today. So the main goal today is that you would entrust yourself to Jesus. There's three scenes or three areas of the story that I want to bring to light. One is the audacious claims of Christ. So that would be point one, the audacious claims of Christ. Point two would be the rebuke of Nicodemus. The rebuke of Nicodemus. And point three is why should you entrust yourself to Christ? Because God loves you. Three points, starting in verse one. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So the story is about Nicodemus and Jesus' interactions with Nicodemus. Nicodemus here is given the title, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee is kind of like the pastors of today or the seminary professors of today, the people of that day who know God's word, who've studied God's word, who've devoted themselves to God in obedience to God. That would be Nicodemus. His whole life, he's decided that he's going to give it to God. In verse 2, this man comes to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform these signs you do unless God was with them. So this pastor of the time, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus and notice at what time Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, in the dark. Jesus has been doing miracles, Jesus was at the temple, overturning tables, upset with the pastors at the time that they made God's place into a marketplace. And so Nicodemus, possibly in fear of being associated with Christ, not wanting to meet him in public where everyone else is meeting him, comes to Jesus at night and compliments Jesus says, hey, rabbi, which is a respectful term. We know you are a teacher and you come from God. 
We know you're on God's side. We know you're on our side. We're with God. We come from God. You come from God. Because we know that no one else can do what you're doing unless God was with them. You're doing all these miracles. God must be with you. And then listen to how Jesus responds in verse 3. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the audacious claim I'm talking about. This might be a little bit of an odd response, right? Jesus comes, Nicodemus comes up to Jesus to compliment him, to say that, hey, uh, you're a part of the kingdom, you're a good teacher. And Jesus takes that and turns it 180 to another side. And he says, hey, you must be born again. That's a little bit of an odd response. Imagine if someone came up to me and said, oh man, I love your preaching today. Or, oh, I'm excited that you're preaching. I said, you must be born again. That's a little bit odd of a shift. But Jesus here is trying to get to the heart of the issue that Nicodemus is really asking. All the Jews, especially the Pharisees, they're waiting for the Messiah to come. They're waiting for Jesus or the Messiah to come and to conquer Rome, to conquer and bring the kingdom. And so on all their minds, they're thinking, is he here yet? Is this the one or should we wait for someone else? That was John the Baptist's response. And Nicodemus is probably thinking the same thing. And so Jesus points to the heart. You want to see the kingdom of God? You need to be born again. Nicodemus responds rightly in some ways. In verse 4, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? It's a reasonable response, right? Um, I tell my wife, you need to be born again. Or I'm like, hey, Ross, I mean, I'm 180 pounds, the heaviest I've been in my life. <laughs> After two kids, my mom is 100 pounds and five foot tall, four foot 11. She shrunk a little bit. If Jesus said you must be born again, without context of what we know is going on, I would be Utterly confused. I don't know how I'm gonna fit back in my mom. My mom gave birth the first time. I was five pounds. I don't know how 180 pounds is gonna get into 100 pounds. Rightly confusing, Jesus. And Jesus answers him in verse five. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. So Jesus is not talking about flesh in terms of whatever is flesh and flesh. Jesus is actually talking about a different type of birth. To be born again, Jesus is explaining, is to be born of water and spirit. So did anyone this week read this text? Yeah? Was anyone confused about what it means to be born of water and spirit? Do you guys have any guesses here for me of what you think it means to be born of the water and spirit? Baptism. Baptism? That's great. Anyone else? What does it mean to be born of the spirit? Filled with Jesus? Yeah, that's great. Anyone else? Those are two great guesses. I mean, initially, when I read the text, I think that was where I was going to. 
And I, I don't necessarily know if that's wrong still. I just, I think the tighter connection might come from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, speaking about the new covenant. This idea of being born again that Jesus is speaking to with Nicodemus, it's the idea that you need to be completely new. Right? Nicodemus had religion. Nicodemus was trying to obey God. And Jesus, in a similar way, was saying your religion is not enough. Nicodemus, your religion, as a Pharisee, is sending you straight to hell. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to be completely changed of water and spirit. And what does that mean in verse Ezekiel 36, verse 25? I will also spring, sprinkle clean water on you, the baptism of water, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe right ordinances. The new covenant and the kingdom of God, those two ideas are intertwined in the New Testament. The new covenant, in one sense, is the kingdom of God. So when we're thinking about the new covenant, we want to think about the Messiah and we want to think about the covenant. And so what is Jesus saying? And I think what most immediately is going on is when Jesus is saying you need to be born of water and the spirit, he's thinking that you need to be born again or immersed or cleaned by God and made new by God. That's the conflict here. The conflict is, does Nicodemus trust God in light of these audacious claims? Will Nicodemus believe what Jesus is saying here when Jesus is saying, hey, all that you've been doing all that you think is obedience towards God, that's not enough. You need something more. If you want to even see the kingdom of God, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again, completely changed, completely new. Will Nicodemus trust Jesus and entrust himself to Jesus? And verse 8 gets even more confusing. Jesus has an illustration here for us. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, in the Greek, the word spirit and wind are actually the same word. Um, you differentiate which one is which based on the context. And so in the Greek, it would be really obvious that Jesus is using an illustration of wind and spirit and connecting the two ideas. And he's saying that the spirit blows wherever it pleases. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You hear the evidence of it, right? I see a tree blowing. I'm like, yep, the wind's blowing. But where did it come from? It might have came from north to south, but from where? Well, from what area? Did it come from Bellflower? Did it come from... Lakewood, where was the origin of this wind? And where is the destination of this wind? We don't know. That's Jesus' illustration. We don't know the origin and destination of the wind, but we see its effects, similar to new birth. We don't know who God's gonna save, but we see new birth. We see a complete change in somebody 
when the spirit works inside them. So that's the first point. Does Nicodemus entrust himself to Christ in light of Jesus' audacious claims that his religion, that his obedience, that his knowledge is insufficient, that he needs to be born again? Second point here, or the second scene, is that Jesus rebukes Nicodemus. Point two. Nicodemus responds. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and, do, and don't know these things? Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things you would have, and, and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Jesus here rebukes Nicodemus. Nicodemus is confused, rightfully so in some ways. But Nicodemus has studied the Old Testament. Nicodemus knows about the New Covenant. Nicodemus knows about the sacrifices, the blood rituals, the, the slitting of the goats that's required for salvation. This idea of being born again by water and spirit is in the Old Testament. And Jesus responds by saying, how can you be teaching Israel? How could you be pastoring the sheep if you don't even know these things? Where, where are you leading these guys? Where are you leading Israel, Nicodemus, if you don't even know the basic things that I'm speaking of here? Jesus says, truly I tell you that he speaks, that we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, and the issue is that you do not accept our testimony. That Nicodemus refuses to accept Jesus' testimony. Even as Jesus is speaking earthly things to him, he does not believe. So how will he believe if Jesus speaks to him about heavenly things? How will Nicodemus receive this rebuke from Jesus? There seems to be some desire of Nicodemus to, to know about this Jesus. And yet Jesus has come out swinging. You need to be born again. Nicodemus, are you a teacher and don't know any of these things? Let's keep going in the story here. There's some glorious truth that's coming in light of these harsh words from Jesus, or these hard words from Jesus. Third point here, God loves you. Entrust yourself to Jesus because God loves you. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is a passage that Joe will be preaching on tonight in Numbers, chapter 21. I'm still going to get into a little bit, but I can get into a lot of it. I'm going to try not to. There's so much glory in thinking about the story. We're just going to turn to it. We did it for our scripture reading this morning, reading about Numbers 21. Um, I'm just going to briefly look at it again and see how 
Let's see what Christ is doing with this. So the story is Moses and this bronze serpent, the Israelites are wandering the wilderness and they're impatient with God. How are we not there yet? Did you take us out of Egypt to kill us? That's not my words. That's their words in verse 5 of Numbers 21. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? Moses, how dare you? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. The Israelites are hangry. <laughs> there's, there's definitely water, or how are they alive? God's been feeding them, but they're starting to get hangry, and they curse God. They're impatient with God. And in verse 6, the Lord punishes them justly and sends poisonous snakes among the people, and they bite them so that many Israelites die. Then the people come to Moses and say, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. So that's a prayer request, right? So many of them are dying and they come to Moses. Oh, Moses, can you pray to God for us? We know we sinned. And my prayer request is that you would take, can you ask the Lord to take these snakes away so that not more of us die? And in verse eight, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. Whenever, when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he was recovered. And so Jesus answers, not Jesus, the Lord answers the prayer request. And the Lord actually does something more. They prayed that the snake would be taken away, but the Lord actually heals those, the Lord takes the snake away, and then heals those who's willing to look at the bronze snake that Moses builds. And so what is Jesus trying to do with that story? Or what is the author of John trying to do with that story? The author says in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. So the Israelites are poisoned. Many have died for their sins against God. And they look at a serpent and they're healed. Does that feel odd to you? When you think of the serpent, what is the first thing you think about? That's right, the garden. And when you think of the serpent, do you think healing? No, what do you think? Curse. And yet, the people who are poisoned are looking at a cursed object and being healed? And that doesn't make any sense. It makes sense, in terms of what Jesus is trying to do with it, is that the bronze serpent that's lifted up on a pole so people can look at, that bronze serpent was a foreshadow, or it's foreshadowing Christ. A bronze serpent does not heal and forgive sin. Yet, Christ, his death on the cross, that forgives him. I skip verse 13 here. But no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus there is just saying, in light of knowing heavenly things, that he's the only one from heaven, and he's the only one who has descended. And his title now is the Son of Man. When you think of Son of Man, what do you think of? 
Daniel, Jesus, when you think of Son of Man and light of Son of God, what does the Son of Man remind you of? The Messiah? Humanity? The Son of Man? The Son of God? One title is speaking about the humanity of Christ. And we'll get to the Son of God. That's speaking about the divinity of Christ. The Son of Man is also speaking about the judgment of Christ. But Jesus, the Son of Man, takes on flesh. The divine king who has no beginning and has no end. The divine king that had no flesh could not be nailed to a cross. Only in his humanity of him taking on flesh could he have his hands nailed to a cross and that cross lifted up like the serpent was lifted up so that those who look at Jesus like they looked at the bronze serpent could be saved. Verse 15, so why was the Son of Man lifted like the bronze serpent in the wilderness? So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If you have pen and a paper, or if you're, if you're writing in your Bibles, um, there's so many logical connections here that if you're able to, I'd love for you to underline a few things as I read the verse again, hoping that you would see the logic of what John is doing. And I know many of you guys have kids with you today, and so it's going to be hard to do that. I'm going to summarize it at the end for you. If you want to look down at your Bibles with me, and you have a pen, well, think about what Jesus is saying. So the Son of Man is crucified and lifted up. For what purpose? Verse 15, so that is a purpose statement. So if you, have, you want to underline that, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then there's another ground in verse 16, for. So why did, why should we believe in him? What is the purpose of believing in him? Or what is the purpose of Christ being lifted up in his death? It's so that we would believe in him. Why should we believe in him? For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son. So that, underline that, is another purpose. Why did God give his one and only son? For the purpose of everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's basically the same idea in verse 15, believes in him, not perish, have eternal life. Two same ideas there, grounded in two truths. Here's the third truth. For God did not send his son into the world. Four is the one you want to underline. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There it is. Three reasons... for one idea. Jesus is trying to sandwich these ideas. He's saying, you need to believe in Jesus so you will not perish and have eternal life. And he gives three glorious reasons why you need to do so. One, the Son of Man took 
flesh, was nailed to a cross, had a crown of thorns on his head, was whipped. All that is in his humanity and the fact that he is the son of man. Second reason why we need to believe, because God so loved the world in this way. There's no so in there. That's my King James, new King James coming out. I just can't not stop and think about so. He gave his only, his one and only son. I've been thinking about this phrase for the last week, thinking about God giving his one and only son. Like a father sending his son to war to protect the nation, knowing that he may die. For me, yesterday we were at a park and I was on this weird jumpy dolly thing with my son where he's sitting on the other side and I'm jumping up and down. He goes up and down and up and down and he's just smiling and he's so happy. And that's right, the seesaw, thank you. <laughs> and I think about that son, I think about zeal. Maybe my one and only son. I think about praying, even now, yesterday, singing to the Lord of zeal. Thinking about sending that son, gearing his life towards missions, towards going to a place far from home where he doesn't know the language, where there may be dangers, like sending him to with Jen Melia and the Aqua Indians, sending him to his death. Me preparing my son now at the age of one years old and eight months for the sake of the mission that might lead to death. And that is a small, incomparable comparison to the father, the God of the universe, sending his divine son to take on flesh so that you would believe and so that you would have eternal life. I'm not saying my son's sacrifice isn't great. I'm just saying that the sacrifice of the divine king of the universe, who knows all things and feels all things and is omnipotent and all powerful, that his way of salvation is that he would send his son to die. Third reason why we need to believe. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe in him is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Their reason is because God should have sent his son to judge the world. I'm not saying that as if I'm God, but 
The world loved darkness more than light. I loved darkness more than light. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here today, you've loved darkness more than light in one point of your life. And God in his glories, the light of the world, the God-man came into the world and people scattered. In a dark world, the light came and people ran and they crucified the sun. Instead of accepting the sun, instead of trusting the sun, instead of entrusting themselves to Christ, they crucified that Christ so that their deeds would not be exposed. That's the third reason why we believe in the sun. Because the sun should have came to condemn the world. Yet the sun came to save the world. The sun came to save you from your sins. The sun came to save Nicodemus from his sins. Last verse here and we'll get to some application. For everyone who does Evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be accomplished by God. This is where I'm getting the idea of entrusting yourself to Jesus. It's the idea of anyone who lives by the truth lives by what Jesus is saying here. Nicodemus, if you're going to live by the truth, what you need to do is you need to entrust yourself. You need to come to the light, the light of the world, who has come into darkness. So that your works may be shown to be accomplished by God. The encouraging part of this story is that Nicodemus' life doesn't end here. Nicodemus, really, um, this verse here is probably the hardest stab or hardest word for Nicodemus. John's explaining that Nicodemus comes at night and Jesus is saying and speaking about darkness and how Nicodemus is like darkness. He doesn't want his sins to be exposed. He doesn't want people to know that he's affiliated with Christ. And yet the story doesn't end here with Nicodemus. In John chapter 7, four chapters later, verse 50, Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously, and, what, and who was, was one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's done, does it? In the story, the Pharisees ask a servant to go get Jesus so that we can off him or kill him. And the servant refuses. The servant's like, well, no one has ever spoke like this. And the Pharisees respond to the servant and says, are you a fool? It's verse 48. Have any of the rulers of Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. 
The Pharisees are ready to kill Jesus. They send a servant to go seize him. And Nicodemus sides with Jesus. He stands up for Jesus. He associates himself with Jesus and says, I'm a Pharisee, or I was a Pharisee. And don't you know the law? That we don't judge people before we hear them? And still, this is not the end of Nicodemus. In John chapter 19, after the Son of Man was lifted up on a cross and is ready to be buried after he breathed his last, John chapter 19, verse 39, Nicodemus, who has previously come to him at night, who had previously come to him at night, also came. He came this time as well. Not at night, but he came to bring a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. The moment Jesus died, his disciples ran. They scattered. And Nicodemus, this man who came at night, didn't want to be associated with Jesus, brought the material for a proper burial for Jesus. Friends, there's hope for us who sometimes feel like Nicodemus, who feel as if God's demand is too great, where there's parts of our lives that we don't want to give to the Lord, to Jesus, or we don't want to come to the light. Nicodemus is a picture of hope for us. If you're not a Christian here today, you may be thinking this is exactly why I'm not a Christian. You Christians are a bit cuckoo, or cuckoo bus. Um, <laughs> you think that you need to be born again? You think that you need to give 100% completely all that you have to Jesus? That's what you believe? Like as if I don't have my life of my own anymore? That's exactly why I wouldn't be a Christian. And my response to you today would be that we give all that we are to somebody or to something. Jesus might not be your master and your Lord, but there's something in your life that's your master and Lord. That could be money, that could be having a perfect looking family, that could be efficiency, that could be authority and power. There's things you give your life to. And I encourage you today to remember that the best thing you can give your life to is one who loves you and cares for you. It's like my son deciding to give the vulnerable parts of himself to me. And as a father, me caring for him. So if you're not a Christian today, God's demand on you is great. You need to be born again. That is the demand that Jesus has on you. And yet you can't make yourself be born again. But Jesus can make you be born again. Jesus is the one who puts his spirit within you and cleanses you. 
Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life you should have lived, who took on flesh so that he can die on the cross, beaten and battered. So turn from your sins. Jesus is the one that rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. So turn from your sins. Turn to Jesus. Be born again. Trust in him. Entrust yourself to him. I like the word entrust over trust because trust or believe can just be a merely theological and head thing. Like, Jesus, like Nicodemus believed in Jesus, that he was set from God. But I don't think here Nicodemus was ready to trust himself to Jesus with what would come, the suffering and the persecution from the other Pharisees, for him losing his status. He wasn't ready for that yet. And yet Jesus rebukes him and gives him a gentle word, reminding him of God's love for him, reminding him and telling him of what he's about to do, a foreshadow of what he's about to do. So if you're not a Christian today, turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. He's the best thing you can devote your life to. We have a lot of children in this room today. Children. 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 Thank you. Um, I, I know that the easiest thing you can do when you do something wrong, you've made a mistake, the easiest thing you can do is probably to pretend like it didn't happen. To just move on like it was all okay and maybe someone else will take the blame. But you hiding and not telling anyone when you sin and make a mistake, that's the worst thing you can do. It's kind of like, I don't know if you guys play hide and seek. I'm sure you play hide and seek. It's the most wonderful game. Um, it's like playing hide and seek and you're hiding under a table and like, oh, mommy and daddy's not gonna get me. Uh, but the lights are on. It's bright in the room. There's nothing covering you other than this table. And you're thinking they're not gonna get me. Isn't that silly? Mommy and daddy are, they, they see you. <laughs> you, you know, you're not hiding from mommy and daddy. You may be able to hide when you sin against your mommy and daddy from your parents, from those around you, but you can never hide from God. I'm still talking to you children. You can never hide from God. There's not one instant, one desire, one thought, one feeling, one sinful act that you have that God does not see. And that can be a scary thing and a glorious thing. If this God that sees everything loves you to the point where he would send his only son to death, to die on the cross for your sins, and he's ready and eager to forgive you of your sins and to have you come to him? Children, that is the best thing you can do, is to actually ask God for forgiveness. Ask your parents for forgiveness, because forgiveness is coming. It's better than hiding and having the guilt overwhelm you. Now, parents, If the children are supposed to come to you with their sins, 
we must have a culture, a, a flavoring of grace. In my family, we talk about having a poker face. When my son makes a mistake or sins against me, it's, it's right for me to be angry in, in the light of sin. We want to be angry and do not sin. But yet, is the predominant flavor of your interactions with your kids, is it one of grace and love? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Is that the flavor you have with your kids? Or is it one of irritation and frustration and disappointment? And just, can you leave me alone? Can you not do that? What is the flavor of relationship you have with your kids? Jesus had a stern warning and stern word, word for Nicodemus. And then he glows off in a glorious explanation of Christ's love for Nicodemus. Christ's love, God's love for the world. Are your relationships with the kids flavored with grace and truth? Do you forgive them? Do you remind them of God's forgiveness? Torture family? stop and say I love that. That's why I say church family. It's because we have people singing up here with kids attached to their bellies. <laughs> there was one escapee that almost climbed on stage halfway through our singing. This is a family gathering. Thank you for the guests who are here joining our family gathering. But to the members of Bethany Baptist Church, we need to take sin seriously. When you join this church, you've agreed that you've given your life over to Christ, that he demands all of it from you. And the best thing you can do is to expose your sin to the light. The light of the world, expose your sins to Christ and also expose your sins to others. Have you ever noticed that oftentimes it's easier for you to confess your sins to fellow, well, to, to God rather than to fellow brothers and sisters? Like it's, it's easier to just ask God for forgiveness and not ask other people for forgiveness or let other people know about your sins. That's odd because God is the only holy one, the only king, the only one who's untainted and has never struggled with the sin that you struggle with. And yet your brother has. I have probably struggled with many of the sins that you struggled with. I understand the difficulties and hardships of sin. And your brothers and sisters do as well. And yet oftentimes it's easier to confess it to God. I wonder if in those moments where you're confessing it to God, if you've been so self-deceived that you've been really confessing to yourself. What exposing your sins to others in the church does is it actually brings a sense of God to you. My brothers and sisters, our church family, we, have the, we are made in the image of God. And when we share and expose our sins to another person, they bring a sense of God as the image bearer of God. And actually gives us the, the sensibility that God is here in our presence as we confess our sins to someone else. Brothers and sisters, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to the Lord. And the flip side is true. Brothers and sisters, 
we need to have a culture of grace. When a brother or sister comes to you with failings and sin, give them the gospel. Remind them of Christ. Don't tell them it's okay. It's not okay when you sin against God. We need to take sin seriously. But we need to take grace seriously. We need to take Nicodemus' failure coming at night seriously. And yet we need to take God's love and sending his son seriously. Our brothers and sisters, let's conclude. Like Bert. I, I still love Bert as one of my best friends growing up. And it, it pains me to know that in this moment he has not given his life to Christ. That he takes his little bit of spirituality, his religion, his relationship with God of some sense as enough. And God is saying that is not enough. You must be born again. And yet we can't be born again. We can't force ourselves to be born again. Ooh, I, I closed my Bible. We're going to open it up one last time. Verse 21, the end. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Who's the one accomplishing the works? God accomplishes the works. Where it's accomplished in God. We have no strength in ourselves to clean ourselves, brothers and sisters. It's like washing your hand in mud. I don't care how much you try to wash your hands in that little puddle of mud, your hands will never be clean. And so brothers and sisters, entrust yourself to God and he accomplishes the work. We continually, regularly entrust ourselves to God and he brings new birth in us. Let's pray. Father, we fail in having a sense of your love for us. Father, we confess that our thoughts of you are small. We don't realize your love for us. We forget your love for us. We neglect your love for us. We dismiss your love for us. We think it's fake. We don't live as if you love us and you gave your only son for us. How else will you not give us everything else, Lord? Lord, give us a deep sense of your love that leads us to entrust our lives with you, the only one who gives freedom, life, joy, forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.